The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Well, hello there and a very warm welcome back to Things Are About To Get Weird. If strange but true stories are your cup of tea, then pull up a chair, my friend, as you're definitely in the right place. On this podcast, I cover everything from unexplained phenomena and bizarre mysteries to wild life stories and, of course, true crime. And it's that very path we're heading down today. The story I have to tell you in this episode has become known as the Angel of the Meadow Murder, and it involves a location that I know very well. Before I go any further, I wanted to give a huge apology for this episode going live a few days later than scheduled. As I'm sure you can tell from my voice, I am not all that well. Unfortunately, the plague finally got me. I'm currently quarantined in our spare room after testing positive for COVID. I have been in the spare room now for an entire week. I'm recording this on Sunday and I'm hoping to get it live on Sunday as well. So please do bear with me. I know I don't sound brilliant, but I'm determined to push through and get this episode recorded and finally live within the correct scheduled week at least. So with all of that said, this story has some incredibly strange elements to it and after learning more about the case, I knew I had to cover it. It's actually become quite close to my heart. Just a warning that this story is pretty heavy and it does contain references to sexual assault and briefly notes the murder of a child, so please do be warned that it does get rough. Okay, with that disclaimer given, allow me to set the scene for today's story. I've mentioned my connection to Manchester a few times on this podcast, and until moving to Cheshire earlier this year, I'd actually lived in Manchester city centre for almost 10 years. It was an amazing time to be in the city, and so much changed during that decade. I mean, parts of the city are unrecognisable from when we first moved there, and it will always be one of my favourite places in the world. When we first moved to Manchester, we rented a little apartment in a place called the Green Quarter. It's only a short walk to the heart of the city, and for the three or four years we were there, we really loved the area. If you're familiar with Manchester, you'll know that the Green Quarter is surrounded by landmarks like Victoria Train Station, the building we all still refer to as the MEN Arena, and of course the large co-op building. The co-op is one of the biggest brands in the UK. They have convenient shops selling food and other groceries, and they also have branches of the business that operate in the funeral care, insurance and banking industries too. The brand was originally founded in Manchester back in 1863 and has links to part of Lancashire, which even predate that formal founding. So it's great that the company's headquarters are still in Manchester to this day. Their current HQ is a pretty futuristic looking structure. I always think it looks like a huge ship, but it's made from glass windows. It's really quite impressive. The building was completed in 2013 and it was built on land that had previously been a car park within an area known as Angel Meadow. The land is steeped in history, 
though sadly this history makes for very grim and distressing reading. The area was actually the subject of a 2016 book by author Dean Kirby called Angel Meadow, Victorian Britain's Most Savage Slum. According to the book's website, the publication aims to take readers on a hair-raising journey through the gin palaces, lodging houses and underground vaults of this 19th century Manchester slum, which was considered so diabolical it was rechristened Hell Upon Earth by Friedrich Engels. Step into the Victorian underworld of Angel Meadow, the vilest and most dangerous slum of the Industrial Revolution. In the shadow of the world's first cotton mill, 30,000 souls trapped by poverty are fighting for survival as the British Empire is built upon their backs. So, as you can imagine, the Angel Meadow of times past looked very different to the modern residential and business hub it's become over the past decade or so. On the 25th of January 2010, works were underway on the plot of land off Miller Street in the Angel Meadow area that would eventually become home to this state-of-the-art new co-op building. It was a bitterly cold day, very typical of Northern England in January, and ground on the plot was being broken in preparation for the building work starting. However, at around 3.50pm, a call is made to police by workers preparing the land for the new development. They tell the officers that they have made a gruesome discovery of what they believed to be human remains. The call was made after one of the workmen unearthed a skull, and once police and forensic experts were able to perform a full excavation of the scene, the complete skeletal remains of what the authorities quickly determined to be a woman were uncovered. From the moment the remains were discovered, this story starts to get strange. The woman's bones were covered and wrapped in a piece of blue carpet, which was determined to have come from the interior of a Ford Cortina car, with the carpet featuring a hole which would have fit neatly around the gear stick. Despite this, the case was initially treated as non-suspicious. I know, I couldn't understand it when I read it either. How a human being would end up deceased, wrapped in a piece of carpet ripped from a car, and buried on a piece of land in a non-suspicious manner is beyond me. But thankfully, this conclusion wouldn't hold for long. A post-mortem was ordered on the remains, and the test concluded that the woman had suffered multiple horrific injuries shortly before her death, including a fractured neck, jaw, collarbone, and nose. Detectives worked to piece together what had happened to the victim and concluded it was likely she'd been beaten to death and possibly sexually assaulted too. There were various items of clothing found with the body, which we'll talk about more in a moment, but her body was uncovered from the waist down, which led detectives to this idea of sexual assault. Now, when police received this phone call that day, I could forgive them for being somewhat taken aback. Hearing that human remains have been discovered on a building site must be quite unnerving regardless. But the thing is, this was not the first time that year that human bones had been found in the area. Just days before this discovery, only a couple of streets over at Manchester Victoria train station, 
workers had discovered what was believed to be a 150-year-old pauper's grave, identifying numerous bones believed to be from the same skeleton. Though these remains were treated as historical and not suspicious, it's truly bizarre that both sets of remains were found within a week of each other, so close by. Perhaps this could explain why police weren't initially suspicious about the Angel Meadow remains, given the history of the area overall. Regardless, it must have soon become clear that there was no connection, as more detailed forensic testing on the Angel Meadow remains were conducted, and further details around the possible identity of the victim started to come to light. Experts believe that she was most likely European, although there's a chance that she may have been from the Middle East or India. She had been of a petite build and born around the early 1950s. They estimated that she would have been between 5 foot 1 and 5 foot 7 inches, or roughly 155 to 170 centimetres tall, and had some fairly distinctive dental work. She had a number of fillings, which isn't unusual, but also had a missing upper right tooth, which would have been quite obvious when she smiled, and this added a solid, identifiable physical feature for police to note in their investigation. But despite all of these thorough tests and forensic examinations, investigators really struggled to pinpoint exactly when the victim had died. They narrowed down the window to between 1975 and 1988, which is clearly still a very broad timescale, but it was a starting point at least. This would have meant she was between the ages of around 18 to 35 when she was killed. As a result of the post-mortem, a murder investigation was officially launched, and by February 2010, police were appealing to the public for any information on the case. Detective Chief Inspector Jeff McMahon from Greater Manchester Police is quoted in a BBC article from the 9th of February saying, This woman's death is highly suspicious and we have a team of trained detectives trying to establish who she is and what has happened to her. We are reviewing all relevant missing persons reports in an attempt to identify her but if you have any knowledge about the items of clothing we have recovered, I would urge you to get in touch. Until we are able to establish further facts, it would be inappropriate to speculate on how long this woman has been dead, or exactly how she died. So, let's talk about the clothing the victim was found with, plus some of the other unusual items buried alongside her. The first few pieces of clothing aren't too out of the ordinary. Police found a blue jumper, a blue or green bra, a jacket, and a pair of tights near to her body. They also found a single black stiletto heel, although the matching one was nowhere to be seen. And an empty handbag, which to my mind points to foul play immediately. No one carries an empty handbag, so I would presume that the contents of it were removed to make identifying the victim that much more difficult if her remains were to ever be uncovered. Then we get to the pinafore. When I started looking into this case, one of the things that immediately drew me in was that police have actually released photographs of this incredibly distinctive, very 1970s style green pinafore dress that was found alongside the body. I'll be sure to post the photograph on Instagram so that you can see it. It's the kind of item of clothing that you would not forget if someone that you knew wore it. It features a repeated pattern which, from a distance, 
essence looks like it could be floral, but when you look a little closer, it actually features illustrations of a man in a top hat smoking a cigar and a woman dressed in a fur stole and a fancy hat holding a cocktail. But the print aside, there are these two large buttons on the front, one yellow and one orange, that makes the piece of clothing even more unique. As I say, if you saw someone wearing this pinafore, you would remember it, whether it was your colleague, your neighbour, someone working in a cafe or a shop. To me, it's such a distinctive and solid piece of evidence. Although the trouble comes when you remember that her body was found in 2010 and she was presumed to have died anywhere between 1975 and 1988. As distinctive as this piece of clothing is, on the other hand, people's memories do fade, so it makes things difficult. One other item located along with the remains was an old piece of Guinness memorabilia, Guinness as in the beer, dating back to the late 1960s, assumed to be from a pub. There's a photo of this available too. It looks to be a plastic sign, almost like a plaque, and it's just a really bizarre detail in this story. It's described in a BBC article as being part of an old Guinness measuring chart, but I struggle to find out what that actually was. From the photo, you can clearly see the Guinness logo, but it's apparent that the sign had been completely buried alongside the body as it's largely coated in dirt. If this was in fact something that would have been commonly found in a pub, could it be that either the victim or the perpetrator had some connection to this industry? There were no shortage of pubs in Manchester. In fact, there were several historic pubs around the Angel Meadow area alone during that time period, though many of them had closed by the time the remains were discovered, which I can only imagine made the police's investigation that much more difficult. Of course, I don't know the exact details of their investigation, but I can only hope that the pub angle was extensively looked at, given this odd piece of evidence. In May of 2011, after unsuccessful attempts to identify the victim after the case was featured on the BBC show Crime Watch the previous year, police decided to take advantage of improving facial reconstruction technology in an attempt to move the investigation along. An anthropology professor created an image of the woman's face based on her skull, and this new visual was broadcast on Crime Watch in the hopes that someone might recognise her. Detective Chief Inspector Joanne Rawlinson of Greater Manchester Police said, This is the first time we've been able to visualise what this woman looked like, and I want the public to look closely at the image and facial reconstruction to see if you recognise or remember her. It is vitally important that we identify her to give some closure to her family, but also help us to investigate who killed her. She was the victim of a violent, physical and possible sexual assault, and I am determined to find out who she is and who killed her. Though after the episode was broadcast, police did receive some promising leads from the public. They were ultimately not found to relate to the Angel Meadow victim. Along with this, it was revealed that in addition to the Ford Cortina carpet, two other pieces of carpet were found with the woman's remains, an orange piece and another blue piece. I found this really odd, firstly because this differed to the initial reports of the crime scene, but also because it challenged my thoughts as to what could have happened when the victim was killed. 
initially, I thought it was perhaps a crime of opportunity and took place with minimal planning. So the killer had wrapped the victim's body in the nearest thing they could find, i.e. the carpet from their car. But learning that there were other pieces of carpet with the victim switched this up in my mind and made me wonder if it was more premeditated and that the killer had sourced materials ahead of time which they could use to cover the body. It's just my thoughts, of course, but when there's so little information to go off in a case like this, I feel that all available evidence becomes that much more important. Now, at the same time as commissioning the facial reconstruction image, police were actively working to try and identify their Jane Doe using DNA testing. Initially, dental record testing was done to try and establish whether the victim was one of three missing local women. Helen McCourt, who was murdered in 1988 by pub landlord Ian Sims, but whose body has never been found. Zoe Simpson, who went missing from nearby Longsite in 1996, and Helen Sage, who disappeared from another nearby area called Rushome in 1997. However, the testing confirmed that the remains did not belong to any of these missing women, and police went on to say that they were looking at around 400 additional cases to see if a DNA match could be made. One moment of positivity in this dark story actually came out of this deeper investigation, as during the course of their inquiries, police say they reunited six missing people with their families and located a further 46 women who, I presume, were listed as missing. But still, no news about the identity of the person who would come to be referred to as the Angel of the Meadow had come to light. Questions were soon raised about whether her death could have been connected to any known killers who were active around the area during the time she was thought to have been murdered. There were two notable suspects. Firstly, serial killer and sex offender Peter Tobin, whose name you might have heard recently as he actually died last month in October 2022. Although his known crimes were largely committed in Scotland and the south of England, Police must have felt there was something about his profile that could potentially match with a crime of this nature, but DNA testing quickly ruled out any connection to the Angel of the Meadow case. The second killer looked into was Ronald Castry, who abducted and murdered 11-year-old schoolgirl Leslie Molseed from Greater Manchester in 1975. This possibility looked to have some more credibility, as Castry was more familiar with the general geographical area, and the timing would have been more in line with the Angel case too. But once again, he was ruled out after further DNA analysis. In November of 2012, police released an update saying that they'd managed to narrow down their list of potential matches to 21, possibly 22 women. The families they were speaking to in connection with the case were spread out all across the world from Texas and the Netherlands to Tanzania. In fact, this link with Tanzania looked to be very promising. A family there had reached out to Greater Manchester Police, who had started to seriously consider the lead. Detective Chief Inspector Joanne Rawlinson said, Some of these families who've contacted us are from foreign countries, and we've also made numerous trips to Ireland. One family contacted us from Tanzania, and we have good reason to believe that this might be the right woman. However, we are having trouble obtaining DNA samples from the authorities over there, and these issues can be problematic. 
I wish I could tell you that the police forces were able to work it out and get hold of the necessary DNA samples, but it looks like either no progress was made on this front or it was and a match wasn't found in this instance, as over the next few years, the case officially went cold. It truly breaks my heart to say this, but by March 2015, the decision was made to lay the Angel of the Meadows remains to rest in an unmarked grave in Manchester's Southern Cemetery. The burial was attended by just two people, the two detectives who had spent so much time working on the case. The authorities had a DNA profile of the victim which they could work from, and I believe the thinking was that if the remains were buried, they could potentially be exhumed if any significant developments called for it. DC Michaela Clinch from the Cold Case Unit told the Manchester Evening News newspaper, We're still looking at this case. We have a DNA profile of the lady and we are doing familial DNA work to try and identify her. That work is ongoing as we speak. Although the case had gone cold from a police investigation standpoint, this story had continued to occupy the minds of true crime writers and some local residents alike. In August 2018, crime journalists Chris Clark and Tim Hicks wrote an incredibly detailed account in the North York's Inquirer, laying out their belief that the Angel of the Meadow case could be connected to serial killer Christopher Halliwell. The former taxi driver is serving a life sentence in prison for the murders of two young women, Becky Godden Edwards, who was killed in 2003, and Sean O'Callaghan, who Halliwell murdered in 2011. But there has long been speculation that he could be responsible for further crimes, and although for legal reasons I have to say that all of this is alleged and unproved, the writers make some compelling points. For example, in the North York's Inquirer piece, they note that the crime fits with Halliwell's modus operandi and victim selection criteria. They point out that it's possible Halliwell could have had knowledge of Manchester and that whilst in prison in the late 80s, he confessed to his cellmate that he had strangled a woman prior to his incarceration. They note that, quote, Halliwell burned clothes and discarded seat covers and floor mats from his car after abducting Sean O'Callaghan to destroy forensic evidence. This is consistent with destroying or dumping the carpet from the car used to transport the deceased, which is very interesting. Halliwell's own sister has spoken out about how her brother displayed sadistic and psychopathic tendencies from an early age, and it's been noted that it would be quite unusual for a killer of this kind to wait until the age of nearly 40 to carry out their first murder. However, I do think it's important to point out that following the publication of Clark and Hicks' article and Clark's subsequent book, The New Millennium Serial Killer, Greater Manchester Police did issue a statement on the matter. Martin Bottomley, who's the head of Greater Manchester's Cold Case Unit, said, We have previously liaised with the Christopher Halliwell investigation team regarding a number of unsolved historic murders in Greater Manchester. There is no evidence linking him to any murders within our jurisdiction. It sounds like the police did fully investigate this lead, so although on the surface it seems like there could have been a decent case to be made here, Ultimately, I don't think Halliwell was the killer. Given that the cold case unit are still looking into the Angel murder over 12 years since her remains were found, I would like to believe that they investigate every lead thoroughly before ruling it out. 
Now, at this point during my research, I have to say I was feeling a little defeated. To dive deep into a cold case where the perpetrator is unknown brings with it a certain kind of frustration. But when both the killer and the victim are unidentified, especially when there are several pieces of solid, pretty unique and clearly identifying evidence found with the body, it starts to haunt me. I couldn't stop thinking about how strange it was that not one lead had led to the identification of the Angel of the Meadow, not the incredibly distinctive pinafore dress, not the car carpet, not the facial reconstruction image, not the DNA matching to the other missing women, not the crime watch coverage, not the familial DNA testing. How could no one know anything about this woman. Manchester is a city, yes, but it's a city full of communities and I just couldn't believe that not one person recognised her from all of this evidence. Then I stumbled across an article from January 2020 published in the Manchester Evening News. In the piece, a man named Alec Whittle, who is now in his 70s, revealed the information he'd taken to police after the angel's body was initially discovered. Alec recalls how in the early 1970s, he'd occasionally visited a club in the inner city suburb of Longsight, which he'd drive to on his motorbike for a pint of beer. At the time, he was around 22 years old and had just left the army. And one night, he remembers drinking at the club when it was particularly empty. Alec recognised the barmaid from his previous visits and had taken somewhat of a shine to her. However, their conversation on this occasion would not be a pleasant one. The barmaid disclosed to Alec that she had some pretty severe bruising on various parts of her body and actually unbuttoned the neck of her shirt to show him the bruises on her shoulder and neck. In the article, Alec says, She started talking straight away. She showed me what had happened to her. She showed me all these injuries down her face and shoulder. She said she had no relatives here. I wanted to help her. I wanted to take her home to my parents' house, but she refused and said she couldn't. I told her that nobody had the right to do something like that to her. I wanted to take her away on my motorbike. The article goes on to quote Alec as saying, we were talking and I said nobody had a right to do that to her. Then this bloke came up and she told me to shush and sit down. This interaction haunted Alec for decades until he heard the details of what was found along with the Angel of the Meadows remains. Alec remembers the pinafore in detail. He says he specifically recalls it being hung up by the bar and that it features what he called a Great Gatsby pattern, which when you see the photo of it makes absolute sense. The thing is, he didn't just have a vague memory of it, he actually used to doodle and sketch the pattern so it was very much firmly lodged in his mind. And I'm sure it goes without saying at this point, but Alec is convinced that the frightened barmaid he spoke to that night is the Angel of the Meadow. Interestingly, Alec noted that she didn't look anything like the facial reconstruction image and that she was actually very attractive. It is widely accepted that these reconstructions are just approximate and as the Angel's skull had been buried for so long, they only had the bare minimum to work with. So to me, it feels entirely possible that it wasn't all that accurate. Alec also said, she said she didn't have any relatives here. 
She was not local, but she sounded English or maybe Dutch, but not Mancunian. I do regret not reporting it to the police at the time, but I thought I could have got her in trouble and I certainly didn't think it would go any further. To me personally, the other clear piece of evidence is of course the Guinness sign. The lady who Alec is convinced is the Angel of the Meadow worked in a bar. Could the sign have been used as some kind of weapon? Was it a possession of hers that she had on her taken from her place of work? Now, police say they fully investigated this lead provided by Alec at the time, but sadly, once again, nothing further came of it. I know, I know. The detectives have said that they'd be happy to look into any additional information that he'd be able to provide, but I'm afraid to say that it wasn't taken any further in an official capacity. For me, God, I wish I had access to the police files on this, as I would love to know why Alex's information didn't lead anywhere, because I can't help but feel there could be some real answers there. I'm certainly not questioning the detective's abilities or the investigation. It seems like they are very committed to this case. It's just yet another strange twist in this story. The fact that he remembered the exact pinafore, the fact that this interaction took place just a short car journey from Angel Meadow, and we know that there was likely a car involved due to the carpets, and of course, with these awful circumstances of the barmaid revealing the abuse she'd been suffering, yet another lead goes cold. And I'm so sorry to say that at the time of recording this in November 2022, the Angel of the Meadow has still not been identified, nor has her killer. I do, however, have one positive thing to share with you in the wake of this incredibly dark story. I stumbled across a post on a blog called Mouse House Life, and I have no shame in telling you that I burst into tears. The author, Eunice, noted that an American firm called Othram, who specialise in forensic genealogy, actually decided to get involved with the case. As I looked into this further, I read about how Othram have developed certain DNA testing techniques that can work better with older skeletal remains. And there were also references to how the UK just isn't as progressive as we could be when it comes to genealogical testing, or at least our legislation and methods around it aren't. There are more in-depth, modern techniques out there, they've just not been properly implemented here yet. So that alone gives me hope. But what really got me is that Othram, along with the Facebook community page Unidentified and Missing People, they got the Angel of the Meadow a proper headstone. It was completed and put in place in 2021. It's a shiny black headstone with elegant gold writing that reads, In memory of Angel of the Meadow, found 25th of January 2010. And the hope is that one day, the stone will be able to be updated and engraved with her real name. Well, the very first thing I wanted to do at the end of this episode is reinforce that although this case is cold, Greater Manchester Police are very much still open to receiving any information that could help to identify the victim or her killer. I know that some of you listening are local to Manchester and may have older relatives who lived in the area during the 1970s and 80s. 
I'm going to put all of the photos that are available in this case on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, including the pinafore dress and the facial reconstruction image. If you could show them to anyone you know who might have even the slightest chance of recognising them, that would be incredible. I know it's the longest shot in the world, but whilst this story has some odd details woven through it, I believe the strangest thing of all is that in 2022, the angel is still unidentified. There has got to be an answer. I will leave the most recent information I could find in the show notes in terms of how to get in touch with police should you or someone you know have any information. A quick shout out to the sources which helped me put today's episode together. There were several fantastic articles from the Manchester Evening News, one from 2010, another from 2020, and most recently from August 2022. The BBC News website was also very helpful, specifically two articles from 2010 and another from 2011. There was the website angelmeadowbook.com, dnasouls.com and the Mouse House Live blog. Given that it has now been 12 years since the remains were found, I find it encouraging that a number of these sources are dated within the past couple of years. It means the case is not being forgotten. As always, a huge thank you for your recent ratings and reviews. I've noticed a few come in in the past week and they have certainly helped to perk me up while I've been self-quarantined with COVID. I'm so grateful. And I think it goes without saying that I would very much love to hear your thoughts on this story. So please do get in touch. A quick run through of how you can do so on Instagram, the handle is at Things Get Weird Podcast. And on Twitter, it's at About to Get Weird. You can also email me at Things Get Weird Podcast at gmail.com too. We also have the Facebook page and the discussion group. So if you search Things Are About to Get Weird on there, you'll find both of those. I will be back as usual with a new episode on Wednesday, hopefully sounding a little bit better. But until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.